2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. For which, he's talking about the gospel at the end of chapter 10. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me, and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, who is up to such things as to come to your word? God breathed word before us. Inerrant and infallible, passed down, preserved by your providence, that we too might hear of Christ, and we too might believe upon him, and we too might join in those who have gone before us in worshiping obedience. So Lord, now we come and we ask that you would do what only you could do. Would you prepare us to receive your word? Would you give us enlightened minds? Would you unplug our spiritual ears, remove the scales from our spiritual eyes, pull back the calluses and the hardness of heart that we might believe? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor And remain unheard, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak to us today? What an astounding request. God, speak to us through your word. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. As I was contemplating this text in our time and how God has in his wisdom and providence aligned us here in 2 Timothy and then on Wednesday nights we've been in the book of Hebrews. We're making faster progress there than we are here, but we're working on it. And I found it, I was... Not curious, uh, but it it came to my eyes, it came to my attention uh, that that God had brought us into a place where, at least in here in in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul the Apostle is writing to his young protege who is um, tired. there's There's a threat here that young, maybe a little timid, persecuted, beaten up Timothy might just choose the easy course and fade into the background to, to sink into the, the, to the woodwork, so to speak, there in Ephesus. I found it interesting that that's been where we've been for the last few weeks. That Paul's writing to this pastor, apostolic emissary, Timothy, don't give up. Share in suffering with me for the gospel. Retain the standard of sound words. Guard the gospel. 
It's going to cost you much. But don't let up. And then on Wednesday nights, we're in the book of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews is addressing a people who are, and many of them, some of them have already fallen away, but they are in grave danger of falling away. That he says, you are in need of endurance. Don't give up the race. Keep running. Yes, you're not where you ought to be. In so many ways, you're, you're not as mature as you ought to be. The culture is changing around you. That's, this is still the first century, by the way. It applies to us. But the culture's changing. You're being persecuted for Christ's sake. Endure. Consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I found it fascinating that God, by no design, right? I'm not that smart. By no design, God has brought us to this point. We're both, if you will, both pastor and those who are in leadership and church member Christian are being admonished and encouraged, exhorted not to give up. There's too much at stake. Again, Paul's writing to Timothy. This is Paul's swan song, right? He is in a dungeon in Rome. He fully expects that he will, any day now, lose his head or some other means of death. He fully anticipates, as if you were to look ahead to chapter 4, he fully anticipates that his present predicament is only going to be relieved by his departure to glory. This is the last letter that the Apostle Paul writes, and he writes it to his beloved child, to Timothy. Timothy that he has sent on ahead and posted at Ephesus. We saw in 1 Timothy that he is that Ephesus is a particular difficult place. It's um, there's lots of persecution. There's uh, there's lots of paganism. There's lots of idolatry. There's lots of opposition. And and Timothy is already young and he's kind of naturally reticent. He has some health issues. Remember, you know, take a little wine for your your tummy. Um, I heard, can I say this is funny? I heard Alistair Begg, who's one of my favorite uh, preachers. He said, um, you know, that uh, he heard a preacher, he was so scared by the wine thing uh, that he, he said it was only for external use. And he's like, what a funny picture to imagine Tim. And, and Alistair Begg has a Scottish accent, which makes this funnier. Just imagine Timothy rubbing wine on his tummy, you know. Um, no, actually drink it, you know. And whatever your thoughts on that, it's, it's in the Bible. We can deal with it later, I guess. But uh, that he had, he had physical infirmity. He had personality that was not a... He, he, he might not be called an, an alpha male A personality. He's kind of weak and timid and young and... And so that gives hope for all of us, right? Because we're all prone to timidity and cowardice sometimes or fear. We're all prone to being stuck on what other people think of us. Particularly in the day of social media. Praise God, Timothy and Paul didn't have to deal with that. You feel like your entire life, you, you you succumb to it, you know, for odd, strange reasons. But you put yourself in a, in a, a goldfish bowl on purpose. So, so that you can, you know, you can tell the world what they ought to think about you, right? You don't want to be honest there. 
You put yourself in a, a goldfish bowl with intent. It should be rose colored so that everything, everybody looking in on your life says, look how peachy it is. But it's so easy, right? You, you see what happens. If someone makes any sort of stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the person of Jesus, for the teachings of Christ, for the life of Christ, for the exclusivity of Jesus, for the reality of heaven and hell, you see that you are going to inevitably pay a cultural, societal price. And if you have any sort of platform in this world, if you have a bunch of Twitter followers or people follow your Instagram or Facebook or whatever you do, You'll be maligned. And you know that's the case if you begin to do it in the world. You're trying to share the gospel with someone and they say, well, didn't, doesn't the Bible say this about human sexuality? Doesn't it say this about male and female? Does, doesn't it say this about Jesus? And the tendency, the, 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 the urge is to somehow say, well, I'm going to be squishy out here. And I'll be firm in here. I'll be squishy on some of those ethical, moral places where our culture is like, it's hot points. But I'm going to say, yeah, Jesus, Jesus loves you. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And there's a danger. There's a danger that when we begin to compromise where the Bible does not, there are plenty of places where the Bible is not explicitly clear. But on things like I just mentioned, it is explicitly clear. And when you begin to compromise in places where the Bible does not compromise, that spirit of compromise can make you not just squishy on the edges, but it can make you a marshmallow all the way through. You understand what I'm saying? That you lose all conviction. You get squishy all the way down to the root. And then you have nothing to say. Go look at some of our... Go look at some of the, the whole denominations in America that are in essence apostate today because of this right here. They became squishy on places where the Bible is not squishy. They began to compromise in places that the Bible does not compromise. About the standards of God. This isn't legalism. When God lays out a principle saying, you should live this way, God's saying, I've made the world this way so that the people who live this way find the greatest joy, satisfaction, and purpose in this world. God's commandments, Scripture says, are not burdensome. They're meant for your life. We're not saved by means of obedience, but we're saved unto obedience. So we have whole denominations that have grown, grew squishy on the outside. And now if you go poke them, you might as well go make some s'mores because they're squishy all the way through. And as such, without conviction, maybe jello, maybe jello is your thing. We make s'mores in my house. So um, Henry likes jello. Not really a big fan of jello, but, but it's like jello. And Jello is not going to make any impact in this world. You look at the whole denomination. I'm not. I mean, you could. We could do that. Whole denominations, and they functionally have no witness in the world. 
No compelling witness because the world looks at them and sees itself. Why do I need to be a part of that? It's like anything else. Paul says he is appointed for the gospel. The gospel being the good news message, right? If you were looking for what does the Bible explicitly say about the gospel, look at somewhere like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the beginning. Right? Here's the gospel. It's all about Jesus. Who he is, what he did, what he's going to do. And you're casting your trust upon him. It is an invitation to leave off sin and rebellion and to follow Christ. And the, re- the response to the gospel, as I said this morning in our Connect class, the response to the gospel always, for you and for me today, even for Christians today, the response of the gospel is always repentance and faith. It's always God is indicting our sinfulness He's indicting our timidity, our cowardice, our fear. He's indicting our sin and then showing us you can't pull yourself out of that. Look at look at the provided lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But gospels all throughout this first chapter, he's suffering for the gospel. God has brought he's abolished death and brought life and immortality through the light to through the gospel to light through the gospel in verse 10. And now he's saying, I have been appointed For the gospel, to be a gospel preacher, a gospel apostle, and a gospel teacher. All I'm not going to unpack all of that right now. But all of that is, is that the gospel is a message that through various means and through various ways needs to be propagated. and needs to be shared. and needs to be taught. and needs to be proclaimed. There are times for this. The proclamation. There are times, right, Paul is an apostle, you're not an apostle, I'm not an apostle, right? We'll not get into that right now. There, there are no other apostles like this, apostles of Christ. There are apostles of the churches in the Bible. That's a big subject. We don't, I don't want to crack that open right now. But um, Paul and the other apostles have a unique place in redemptive history because they are unique eyewitnesses to the work and ministry of Christ. And then they were uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit to write those things down in various ways like this letter. Apostles don't function like that right now, today. But we need preaching and we need teaching. There are times for this and there's other times for, for like in the Connect class where I sit down and I have a, look, y'all pray for them, right? I've got this big whiteboard and I'm just like, you know, yeah, some of y'all know whiteboard, Jacob. It's like, what in the world? Um, I just get to thinking, you know, and writing. Uh, but we need times where we can ask the questions and we can dialogue and we can, we can press in deeper and we can wrestle with things in the text. But we need all of that. Because the gospel is a, is a message that has to be shared verbally. It needs words. It needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be taught. And there, and there needs to be those apostles today would be like a missionary who sent with the, me- mes- uh, sent with the message to make it known. For this reason, because God, the one who has appointed him is God. He's been appointed by the sovereign God of the universe. By Christ himself. Remember, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's been appointed by Christ himself. And he says, but for this reason, I suffer these things. What are these things? What is, what is in Paul's view at this moment? 
What is he suffering? I've already told you, but what is he suffering? He's suffering for the gospel. What, what are the current circumstances in which he's suffering? He's in prison. He's not in the, and he's not in the penthouse prison. He's in the dungeon. He's got shackles and stank, dank mice and rats and whatever else is down there. See, the, the Bishop, Bishopville Lizard Man is probably, that's where he probably came from. Um, down there in the bottom of the guts of the Mamertine prison in Rome. He's suffering. It's in front of him. This is not abstract, hypothetical. He's saying, I'm suffering these things today for Jesus' sake because he gave me the message to bring it out to light. Whenever, and you can anticipate this, whenever God says, you have to share this. And I'm not saying that you're going to be doing what I'm doing. Or that God's going to send you somewhere. I'm not saying that he's not going to do that either. But all of us have been entrusted with the gospel to bring the gospel to bear where you already are. And whenever you do that, you have to know that you are bringing light into the darkness and the darkness will resist the light. You understand what I'm saying? That you are an emissary from King Jesus going to reclaim that which belongs to him. But is right now under the sway of the ruler of darkness. Satan opposes the proclamation of the gospel. He opposes the opening up of God's word. He opposes people understanding the Bible. This was like, this, this could turn into a soapbox. I'm just... This was the thing with the Reformation. The Reformation wasn't a perfect movement, anything. I'm not getting into that. But this is the thing. People were worshiping. They were worshiping. They were being brought to, to the Roman Catholic Mass, and they could not understand a word of it because it was all in Latin. And they weren't supposed to. That was by design so that people would not worship. It was, a, it was a demonic stranglehold that had laid claim to Jesus' church. Satan hates it when you get it. And, and too often, you're oh so happy not to get it because it's hard to get it sometimes. What, is, what does he do in the parable of the sower? Sower went out to sow. He's chucking the seed everywhere. The seed lands upon the path. What happens? The birds come and pluck it away. And for some of you today, that's what's going to happen. You're going to have heard the message of the word of God. And you're going to go out from here. And, and that message is going to be immediately supplanted by whatever you fill in the gap. Right now, you're thinking of something else. I pray that's not true. I'm just sort of playing the odds right now. And you need to know that right now, this place, this time, this is a spiritual battleground. Whether you will attend to the word of God or will, whether you will continue to live in darkness. Or some of you, you will pursue darkness. This is a spiritual battleground. And Paul says, I'm suffering these things because the gospel is pressing into the light. And you, Christian, Timothy, Paul, preachers, deacons, Sunday school teachers, greeters, moms, dads, grandpas, grandmas, whoever you are, 
whenever you are laying claim to wherever you are for the light of Christ, you are in a spiritual war zone. And Satan's coming for you because he wants that territory. We wage not, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, cosmic powers, and the heavenly places, Paul tells the Ephesians. He tells this very church earlier, but he tells that same church. But I am not ashamed. He's just told Timothy, right? This was supposed to be the bookends, right? In in verse 8, he tells Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't, Don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me, but join with suffering. And Paul's saying, look at my life. Look at my life. What, to live a life that you could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, as he told the Corinthians. But I am not ashamed. Paul is not, even though he is in the darkest of dark right now in that dungeon. Paul is not fading into the woodwork. Paul, by the grace of God, refuses to go quietly. But he is not ashamed. He famously says this to the Roman church in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Would that be our posture? If we have truly seen the light of the glory of God and the gospel of Christ, we cannot be ashamed He gives two reasons why he's not ashamed. One, for, there's the key, right? Verse 12. But I'm not ashamed for or because I know whom I have believed. His unashamedness flows from personal relationship with Christ. Being unashamed directly correlates with your relationship with Jesus. Would you not be ashamed in this world? Lean into Christ. Would you not be swept off into the darkness? Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. Cast your faith upon Jesus. That seems like a throwaway point that we shouldn't have to say. But I know whom I have believed. He knows him in relationship and he knows what he's about. He knows the promises of God and the word of God. He knows the the salvation history of the people of Israel, how God has birthed the New Testament church. He knows him. He knows that what he's suffering is worth it. He tells the Corinthian church again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, but this light and momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Did you catch it? Present suffering produces eternal glory. Let me say it slow. Like without, this is no preacher voice. Present suffering produces eternal glory. When you press into the darkness and the darkness bites back, glory It's deeper, wider, and sweeter. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, 
My suffering is worth it. Christ is worth it. Jesus said, the, you, the disciples are not greater than, than the master. They hated me. They're going to hate you. It's worth it. Secondly, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard. I'm convinced that he is able. God is able. You think about, it's so easy. Christians, we, like we, we magnify, we, I don't know if I want to say it. We magnify Satan sometimes. Well, Satan didn't make me do this, and Satan did this. and sa- God is able. Satan's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's, omni- he's not omnipotent. He's at one place at one time. He got minions and demons and everything else that's running and chasing your tail. But Satan's in one spot. God, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, to God be the glory. Magnify Christ in your heart, says Lord. He alone is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. That includes earthly kings and that includes the principalities against which we wage war. I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted into him until that day. There's a little bit of te- like, I'm not going to, I don't have time to get into all the text stuff right now. But Paul's saying, I believe this is what this text is saying. And Paul's saying, I've entrusted my life to him. I'm not ashamed because God holds my life. And he's able to guard it. Against the f- greatest fiery darts Satan has God is able to guard my life. Even through the dungeon. And even through the executioner's blade. God holds my life. He holds my life. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 10. That he is the good shepherd. And no one can snatch his sheep from his hand. There's nothing that this life, this world, Satan himself can do that will snatch you from the hand of God. God is able to guard. We can't be ashamed. God is able to guard what I've entrusted. And he turns, verse 13, saying, I've been appointed to to bring the gospel out. I'm suffering because I'm bringing the gospel out. I'm not ashamed because I know God and he's able to guard my life. These are, these are true for you too. And then he turns to Timothy with these two imperatives in verse 13 and verse 14. These two commands. He says in verse 13, retain the standard of sound words. It could be hold um, a th- I'm not going to say that. It, it could be hold. It could be retained. It literally means to grasp. Hold on to the standard of sound words. That Timothy, Paul is handing the, he's handing the baton off. Don't be ashamed. Don't fade. Retain the standard. Hold on to the standard of sound words. What on earth does that mean? It means that the content of the, of the gospel must be held on to the, 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 or the pattern of sound words, the standard of sound words. He's saying, what you have heard from me 
The apostolic teaching, the interpretation, the application of what Christ said in the Gospels coming to bear to you, you must not let any of it fall. That what he is giving to Timothy is a body of truth. Talk about something our culture hates, right? God is entrusting to Paul, here's the truth of Jesus. Paul is handing it to Timothy, here is the truth. And here's the, here are the, the historical events of Christ's life. And here's how they all fit together. Gives meaning to all of those things. You see the difference? This is why it's so important how we teach our kids. Yes, we need to teach them all the Bible stories. But it cannot just be like, you know, like you just throw paintballs against the wall. And you have like Noah's Ark and Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and whatever. All, like all the Bible stories just out there, right? And they grow up and they're like, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty mosaic. I'm going to go to the world now. Because it doesn't, there's no, it's not knit together. There's a, there's a pattern, there's a standard of sound words. Where we take what has happened... And we read something like Paul, and we'll talk about this more next week. We read like where Paul and Peter and the apostles, they interpret the facts and say, this is what this means. This is why we can say stuff like, God is a trinity. Even though the word trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. There is a standard of sound words that we have inherited. This is how what you do with the Bible. We are not free. Understand this. We are not free to interpret and reinterpret the Bible with each successive generation. We do not get to come up with, what. I wonder what this means. You hear enough of that garbage on everywhere else. I've told you, I've told you this story 16 times. I'll tell it another 6,000 times. The Lord gives me breath. But there will always be someone, there will always be someone that's a pastor, a preacher, an internet influencer that will tell you what you want to hear from the Bible. They will confirm you in your sin. And you need to know that a good way to test aberrant, unorthodox, unhealthy, unsound teaching is when they say, everyone else in church history has got this wrong, but I have it right. That's how cults are born. Look at Joseph Smith, the Mormons. Everybody's wrong. I got these gold tablets. We're right. Charles Taze, Russell, Jehovah's Witnesses. Everybody's wrong. I have some new revelation. Look what I found. That's how cults are born. And we have a burgeoning cult right in front of us. And it is centered on LGBTQ stuff right now. They're taking the Bible. Those who are taking the time to do it. Many people are just chucking the Bible out the window. Say, I'm going to live the way I want to live. At least they're honest. Then you have the people who are taking the Bible. And they're saying, that doesn't actually mean that. And they're embodying the serpent of the garden. Saying, did God really say that? No, it was something different. That is a demonic cult birthing in our generation and we need to be able to say no 
Not only is it terrible exegesis, not only is that not what the Bible says, but that would be a foreign interpretation for every single Christian for almost 2,000 years. Retain the standard of sound words. We must keep the content of the gospel whole. It all connects together. I could, that demands more time, but keep the content of the gospel whole. He received it through the teaching of the apostles. And then he says, which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I want you to do the what. I'm concerned with the what. Retain the, the standard of sound words. Sound meaning they're healthy. They bring health and strength. This is how God built his church by his word. This is how God calls his sheep home to Jesus by his word. Not just the how, I mean, not just the what, but the how. You need to retain the standard of sound words with faith and love. Even as everyone's trying to chip away at this body of truth, this testimony, apostolic testimony that Timothy has received from Paul, It'd be easy to get upset about it, but you have to trust Christ while you love. The spirit of the evangelist is always love. The spirit of the Christian must always be love. Love that we see in Christ and love that is demonstrated to us somewhere like 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Which are in Christ Jesus. You don't know faith or love outside of Christ and finally, this second imperative is the, the big one. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure or the good deposit which has been entrusted to you. Guard the gospel. Not only will there be an inward temptation or, or an outward temptation to kind of trim down the sound teaching, the sound words. But there will be an external resistance to the good news of Jesus. And Timothy, prone to fear, weak in your stomach, you must guard the gospel. And dear ones, this must happen in every generation. Every generation is a steward of the gospel for generations to come. We must guard it in the sense that we cannot compromise what God says about Christ, what God says about our sin, what God says about redemption, what God says about heaven and hell. We cannot leave these things off. We can't grow squishy. No more marshmallows. No more powder puff. No more tater tots. We have to guard the gospel. I think for so long in America, we just assumed it. Especially in Bible Belt America, we just assumed the gospel. And the thing which you, as I said, I think I said this last week, the thing which you, uh, the thing that you assume is one generation from being lost. Guard the gospel.
but you can't do it in your own strength. You can't protect this beautiful treasure of good news. Paul says, guard through the Holy Spirit. You keep trusting in Christ's power. You keep trusting in the Holy Spirit's power. You're believing that he's working in you according to his glorious strength. Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 1.11. But that he's also working in those who are your hearers. That even the gravest persecutors of the church can be flipped by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at Paul. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We are in Christ, verse 13, as the Holy Spirit is in us, verse 14. The Holy Spirit supplies the needed power to fulfill all of the imperatives of Scripture. All of the commands of God are empowered. You're empowered for obedience by the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. He is able, and He is able to see you guard the gospel. He's able to see you retain the standard of sound words. He's able to see you bring the gospel to light where there's darkness in your family or in your neighborhood. He's able to see and give you power that you might love your enemies when they persecute you. He is able. Holy Spirit is a down payment now glory to come. The gospel is meant to go out. As it goes out, we will suffer something, some cost in this world. We must not be ashamed because we know God and we know that he is able. And because of who he is and what he does, we must retain the standard of sound words. We must hold on to the content of the gospel and we must guard it from external attack. I had planned in this space to say, here are all the ways, right? This is all how it works out. Here are all the ways that the gospel is under fire. I've, I've, I've mentioned the big one, I think, right now. With I- issues of homosexuality, transgenderism, and that whole, whole thing. I'm not trying to be derogatory toward that whole thing. But it is what it is. Baptized in Christ's name, it is an abominable cult thing there's the prosperity gospel there's the nationalistic gospel all sorts of false gospels that surround us you guard the gospel because satan wants to counterfeit it enough so that people buy it and die the opposition to the gospel in our land right now one day it might be like somewhere in the Middle East, in some Muslim country. But right now, the gospel's under attack by it being corrupted. You're about to get get sermon number two. I won't do that to you. But guard the gospel. And the way that you guard the gospel is that you become acquainted with the real thing. I've heard that story, and this is all closure, about how they train, um, you know, about to train people how to identify, and there's a 
my pulling our deputy. I don't know if this is, I've heard this story. Uh, how they how they train people to recognize counterfeit money, right? Counterfeit hundred dollar bill or twenty dollar bill. Uh, is that at least part of the process is get really, 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 really acquainted with the real thing. What, what, what makes a $20 bill a $20 bill? What are the things that should be there? How should they be there? What, what should not be there? How are, how, what's easy to manipulate? What's harder to manip- manipulate? What, are, what does it look like? Because it's much easier to fall for, I don't, I don't recognize a counterfeit $20 bill because I, don't, I haven't spent the time studying an authentic $20 bill. Because they pass through my wallet so fast. It just goes, you know? <laughs> Kids food, dog food, whatever, it just goes. Uh, but the same is true for the gospel. One of the ways that you will be bought into a false gospel and kind of pulled astray is that you're not, a really, you're not really aware of the real thing. And so if there's any admonition, there's a lot I think I could say, but become acquainted with Jesus. Who does scripture say he is? Open your Bible, Christian. Open it and read with joy. That the God of glory has made himself known to you there. Ask for his help. Stay connected to a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. Pray it's this one. Become acquainted with the real thing. And then you'll be able to identify the counterfeits. Some of you today might be believing a counterfeit. You might be trusting in a false gospel that tells you you're saved by what you do. You're saved by your accumulation of moral deeds. That you're good with God because your moral track record has more good, has more pluses than minuses. More gold stars than, I don't know, black demerits, whatever. That's a false gospel. That's called moralism or legalism. You might be believing a gospel that says you just simply go with what feels right. Sort of simply in an in intuitive, well, this, this must be right because it, it accords with my inward person. Well, if your inward person is according with something that the Bible does not accord with, that is not the gospel. You cannot go with your emotions and your experience and your feeling. You must say, what has God said? And then test your experience by it. I don't know. Maybe today you're walking in, you're, you're full-blown know that you are lost. Or it's become patently clear right now that you don't know the good news of God. That you're, and worse than that, you're alienated from the God who made you. And I want you to know right now that that can change today. If you've been leaning on a counterfeit, trust the real thing. Find new life in Jesus. And confess it to him. Just ask for his help. Lord, come into my life. Change me. Help me. I want to follow you. And we would love, I would love to talk to you about that. I'd love to pray with you. If you don't want to do it up here in front of everybody, pull me aside later. Shoot me an email. Give me a call. All my stuff's out there. 
It's almost like public domain, I think. But um, don't go the same. But Christian, take the light to the dark. Count the cost. Take the light into the dark. Retain the gospel and guard it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Christ and the good news of Jesus that we continue to grow in understanding and application and reality of the gospel of Christ. Would you give us courage to bring light into the darkness? And right now, maybe, God, you would raise up the place that we're most fearful, the relationship that we're most fearful, that individual and Would you give us grace to entrust that to you, praying that we would be faithful there? Lord, we are beset with confusion and disorder all around us. But it's Christ and his gospel that brings order out of chaos. So if there's any heart in here today that's chaotic, down is up and up and down and they don't know where to turn. Would you give them grace to lift up their eyes to look at Christ? To yield their life and surrender to Him and follow Him. But Lord, attend Your Word with Your power that would accomplish Your will. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.